morning, Village Church. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here. We're in uh, week two of a new series through the book of Ecclesiastes, and the title is The Meaninglessness of Life. I was thinking this morning, there's probably at least one person <clears throat> in this room who woke up this morning and thought, you know, I'm going to go to church today, and uh, I just need some encouragement. Life has been hard lately, and then boom, we hit you with this graphic right here. The meaninglessness of life. We're going to spend some time this morning in chapter 1, chapter 2, and I can assure you that we're going to find some good news this morning, um, as we always do. And There's going to be a lot of hope, there's going to be a lot of peace, there's going to be a lot of joy, but we're going to see really clearly, as we saw last week in the beginning of chapter 1, that life has no meaning apart from the meaning maker. And this idea continues throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, and so we're going to jump right into it. We're in chapter 1, verse 12. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, it's going to be right up on the screen. No problem at all, all right? Chapter 1, verse 12. It says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Real quick, in case you weren't here last week, this is um, a book of the Bible that um, is really debated in terms of who the author is. Um, chapter 1 has a few clues into the author of Ecclesiastes. We covered it a little bit last week. The person being described, you would... Um, seem to think appears to be maybe King Solomon. Solomon was the son of David, king of Israel. He acquired more wealth than anyone on earth. We know he acquired more wisdom than anyone on earth when he asked God for it. And he was king around 970 BC. And we see the author identifies himself in chapter one as the preacher. And, and at, one, at one point he'll actually talk about um, being king in the past tense, which is another thing that doesn't fit um, directly with Solomon, who we know died during his reign. It also speaks of many kings before him, and we know in the history that, that Solomon was only the second king of Israel. So it's not very straightforward, but we have a few guesses here, and one would be a later king that is to come after Solomon, or perhaps written by someone else, but stylistically from the perspective of Solomon, or simply that it is just Solomon. But regardless, we know something really unique about the preacher here, and that is that he has the unlimited ability to put things in life to the test. Things like money and power and fame and pleasure and achievement. He can have as much of these things as he desires. And so he can go further down the road than you can or than I can. And this is what he's going to do, particularly this morning. We're going to look at the, the first test of the preacher here, the testing of earthly wisdom and knowledge. Let's keep going. Look at verse 13. He says, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. So right away, we see a couple phrases that we see throughout the book. The first is this, the idea of being under heaven or under the sun. The preacher's going to say under heaven three times throughout this book. And he's going to say under the sun 29 times throughout this book. And every time we read this, we should see this as a reference to everything that happens on earth, as seen from earth. It's a lens that, that does not account for the kingdom perspective. It does not account for God's perspective. And the conclusion for the preacher is that after examining 
by wisdom all the activities of man, all the days that we spend, and the things that we seek to accomplish, everything that is done under the sun, what we find in verse 14, all is vanity, striving after the wind. This idea of striving after the wind is really cool imagery here. In the Hebrew, you see the verb here that could also be used to describe the work of a shepherd. And so many commentators would translate this, all is empty, it's like trying to shepherd the wind. The wind blows this way or that way. What could we possibly do about it, right? And the imagery of shepherding the wind, trying to corral the wind, it's, it's very clearly trying to help us picture something that is laughable, that, that is worthy of being mocked, that it is futile. I, some of you have a, a nice home gym in your garage. Maybe you started one in the last two years. Um, I wouldn't say I have a home gym, but I have these very small weights, okay? I got like your fives, your tens, whatnot, you know. But I also got the big boy stuff. I'm talking 12s, I'm talking 15s. <laughs> I do have a little, couple big ones though. Uh, and there's times in my house when my young girls will try to pick up one of the large weights and I'll be just sitting on the couch because I probably just finished a workout, probably just finished. <laughs> but, and I'll watch them and I'll see, you know, my young child try to pick up a 30 pound weight. The kid can't count to 30. The kid barely weighs more than 30 pounds. She doesn't know science. She doesn't know how muscles work or joints. She knows nothing. And from where I'm sitting, this is a worthless endeavor, right? And so it's a statement about their lack of understanding, right? It's not just that I'm watching a child try to pick up a 30-pound weight. I'm watching a lack of understanding play out in my living room. Does that make sense? The preacher says all around the world, people are trying to discover meaning under the sun. And when you examine this fully to its fullest end, you can see how hopeless it is and therefore how sad it is. And so this morning we, be, we begin the Ecclesiastes theme of examination and experimentation, putting ideas to the test, putting philosophies of this earth to the test. And these are the reflections of a wealthy powerful king, a man who has the ability to put things fully to the test. And you and I, we have the unique position of not being able to put things fully to the test, right? Some of you here have told yourself, if, if I just have this, then I would be satisfied. And you get to tell yourself that for decades without ever finding out if it's true or not, right? This is the beauty of fantasy that we slip into. Maybe you've always wondered if you would crumble under, under the pressure of playing in a Super Bowl. And you know what? You'll never know. So just go ahead and tell yourself whatever you want, right? Maybe you've always told yourself that you would do really well on the TV show Survivor, right? I <laughs> friends like this. And you'll never know. So you just tell yourself whatever you want. And if you're married and you're watching Survivor on the couch with your wife, you can just feel free to say, as you probably already do, every couple minutes, I could do this. I could win. I could win this show. And your gracious wife, full of wisdom, will nod her head. She'll say, I bet you could. You 
but maybe it's something more common, right? More common that we see around us. I wonder what it would be like to have more things. I wonder what it would be like to have a bigger house where we could spread out and, our, and have more room for our kids. I bet things would be so much better. You're always watching HDTV and Chip and Joanna are always tearing down walls and putting shiplap in the bathrooms and putting shiplap in the living rooms and shiplap on the shiplap. And, and you're just eating it up and you're screaming at the TV, more shiplap, more natural light, take out another wall. <laughs> but what you're really thinking is, if I had that house, man, life would be so much better. But we have a unique restraint. We open up our computers, we look at our bank accounts, and we can just say, well, I guess I'll never know, right? And therefore, we can spend our entire lives telling ourselves things without being able to test them. You could say, if I had this thing go my way, then this is how I would feel. I just know that's how I would feel. I know things would be better. We can tell ourselves whatever we want for years and years because we might not ever get to fully put it to the test. Will I be happier if I get the income that I want or the career that I want or the marriage that I want or my kids acting the way I want them? But the author of Ecclesiastes, he can test many things to their very end. And he can say, you guys stay here. I'm going to fully go down this road. And I'm going to yell back at you and tell you that it was all worthless. I'll tell you if I found meaning at the end of this road. And I'm going to do this with pleasure. I'm going to do this with money. I'm going to do this with achievement and fame. I think the first thing we see this morning is that the experiments teach us that if we are not satisfied today, it's not that we need to travel farther down these roads. The experiments reveal that these roads are incapable of bringing us any closer to ultimate satisfaction. It's the world we live in. Again, look at verse 14. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. Keep going, look at verse 15. He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. What is he saying here? This is no doubt a proverb that he's quoting, possibly known to the original audience. It's not a proverb we find in our Bibles. Instead, it's simply a statement of this unchangeable reality that everything on this earth is just deeply flawed. And whatever efforts we apply today, whatever wisdom we apply, whatever progress we make to set things in order, we still wake up tomorrow in a broken world. The natural state of earth flows towards chaos and destruction. A child left to their own desires, undisciplined and untrained, will self-destruct. The things that we create with our hands left uncared for, they will fade, they'll fall apart. The roof on the house is getting older every day and the fence around the yard is getting weaker every day and the dog doesn't feed itself and the plants just want to die. Life is an endless toil and the things we fix today will need to be fixed again. There's a, a popular internet meme from a well-known TV show and and in the cartoon, the son says to his father, he says, Dad, this is the worst day of my life. 
And the father bends down, puts his arm on the son's shoulder, and looks him in the eyes and says, this is the worst day of your life so far. And the earth around us testifies to this, to, to the chaos and the pain of it and, and the unendingness of it all. When a, a tornado rips through a town, it never makes anything better, right? You don't have a tornado roll through the town and then all of a sudden you've got a new public library, right? It just doesn't happen. You don't see the citizens in Florida gathering so excited for Hurricane Lauren to arrive, saying, I hope we get a new Whole Foods, right? Instead, you have men with supplies and tools, and they're loaded up on vehicles ready to deploy and repair what breaks and fix the power lines. And as soon as the lights come back on and everybody's back home and the trees are cleared out, you sit down on the sofa, you take a deep breath, and in that moment, you know it's over for now until it happens again. And so they keep the gas tanks full on the emergency vehicles and they restock their gear. It's not just true about nature. It's not just true about natural storms. It's true about relationships. It's true about the things of our life. The conversations you have to have with each other to repair and restore, you have to have again and again. Maybe you're raising a teenager or a young child towards obedience and and you have to have a conversation about obedience and you walk away and you're like, man, I nailed that. That was like a TED talk on parenting. <laughs> it was perfect. My logic was flawless, seasoned with just the right scriptures. Someone should transcribe that. It should be in a museum. My child will never disobey for the rest of my life. And all is well in your home for at least five minutes, right? And so the first road is wisdom. What if I travel down this road so far? What if I acquire so much wisdom and understanding? Then life will have to be better. It will have to make more sense. And he keeps putting this to, te to the test. Continue verse 16. Follow me. He says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Verse 16 is a strong argument for, for the author being Solomon here in some ways, or possibly... Um, it's back to the, the, the idea of the, the kingship and the, and the wisdom and the great wisdom of the earth, right? But now we get back to this road concept that I had more wisdom than anyone, and in the end, it didn't change anything. Earthly wisdom brings as many problems as it does solutions. Wisdom brings vexation, that is, anger, grief, frustration, and, and knowledge brings sorrow. Some of you in this room, you've lived a long life. You've lived many years. You've seen much suffering. Some of you have raised kids into adulthood. Maybe you now have grandkids. That's just more people on this earth that you love, more people on this earth that you know about their life and you share in their suffering. You invite yourself into their life. You bring people into your life, and it's more knowledge 
it's more weight to bear. You share in their struggles. You share in their sufferings. There's two men that I've known over the years who are missionaries who work in different countries, and they work with hundreds of kids who are either orphans or living in extreme poverty, living in broken homes or tempted to join gangs or with drugs and crime. And, and they're joyful people. They're filled with the Spirit of God. They're happy people. We can laugh. We can enjoy days together. But they carry a lot of heaviness from just simply how much they know about the things and the people around them. Does that make sense? They carry a lot of weight of the things that they've seen and heard. I remember being in, a, in an orphanage in El Salvador, and, and there was this little sweet girl who started, as soon as we walked in the room, she, she took all of her clothes out of her dresser drawer and started folding them on the bed really nicely. She kept looking back to see if anyone was paying attention, and I just thought she was good at folding, because what, what do I know? <laughs> and they said, no, she's, she's showing you that she's a good girl. She wants someone to take her home, right? More knowledge brings more sorrow. Couldn't stop thinking about that the whole rest of the day, right? There's another girl that was really sad, didn't want to play any of the games we were playing, didn't want to talk with us. And, and, and someone pulled me aside and said she had just been rescued a couple weeks ago out of human trafficking. More knowledge brings sorrow. Could not stop thinking about that. There's a boy we drove past who was sleeping on the streets, and he was just a child. And, and the missionary we were with knew him, knew him by name, told him to come up to our truck. We gave him food, and he said he keeps running away from the orphanage because he can't get off drugs. So he runs back to the streets, and he sleeps in the streets. More knowledge brings more sorrow. And so the joy of building close relationships on earth brings with it the sorrow of sharing in suffering, and everything then be, just feels tarnished. It's a painful world when we have so much to lose. When we look at everything under the sun, it's no wonder so many people feel so empty. And so many people feel like their best option is just to assemble as many good days as possible as many good outcomes as possible, and to avoid as many bad things as possible. There's nothing worth hoping beyond that. More wisdom and knowledge doesn't make it any better. And so we move now to chapter 2, and the author continues this examination. We're going to jump over starting in verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. So I, can, so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. It's madness and folly terms that we should understand as the, the evil and the foolish things done by the people on earth. And, and the, really, the really hard question here, the depressing question here is, what is the point of pursuing wisdom rather than foolishness if the end for all people is that we end up in the ground? These are the honest thoughts of, of a weary soul. So many people walk through life in ignorance and foolishness. And yet it appears that the outcome for them is the same as those who are careful and thoughtful and wise. 
Look at verse 15. Look at how he wraps this up. It says, Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after the wind. We see here that you know, physical death is the end for the foolish and the wise. It's the end for the rich and the poor. It's the end for the politicians and the pizza delivery guys. It's all the same. We need to know this. We need to understand this. But then where do we go from here? I think, surprisingly, this is where we find good news for us this morning. I think that Ecclesiastes reveals the idols of our minds. And it leaves us with a clear picture of the world that offers us nothing. And so, in a way, Ecclesiastes prepares our hearts to hope only in Jesus. Does that make sense? Ecclesiastes prepares our hearts to just wipe the, the cabinet of the idols. So many people do not have ears to hear the gospel of Jesus because they have their heads down, fixed on their agendas, because they really believe that they're going to squeeze meaning out of this life, out of this empty world. And the idea of needing a savior still seems foolish because they think that they got some room to go down this path. I was thinking this week that, you know, if you want to tell somebody about the gospel of Jesus saving sinners. You might want to start with like the gospel of John. You might want to open up to the book of Romans. But if you want to tell somebody about the emptiness of all of their earthly pursuits, you might just want to start with Ecclesiastes. Does that make sense? So many people around us, before they will ever believe that they have any need for Jesus, they will need to see their idols fail them. They will need to get down a road to a point where they see that it's not a matter of distance. It's just not a good road at all. Does that make sense? Yes. They're going to need to see that trusting in their own knowledge is like trying to shepherd the wind, as the preacher says. But all around us, right, we're, we're surrounded by people who are saying, no, not, that's not going to be my life. I'm going to make something of it. You just watch. And they're stuck on this hamster wheel, right? Going through the cultural checkboxes that, that prove our maturity. And we're ignoring the, the whisper that we're, we're still really not satisfied. You get good grades in school, don't do bad things. You get into a good college, you get a good career, you make a name for yourself, you start a family, you get a house, go on vacations. We know all the things. And yet every day, <laughs> one day closer to death. And he says it's all worthless. Everyone's going to the same place. It doesn't matter what you do with your life. And, and, and this is a statement that should, that should tear down our idols, right? One man spends his life studying nutrition, fills his mind with wisdom, for 50 years takes care of his health. And he can hold every yoga pose perfectly. 
4% body fat. And he gets hit by a bus walking to Pilates class, right? And he opens his eyes and he's standing before the throne of God with his Lululemon men's shorts. You got another guy spends his whole life playing video games, smoking cigarettes, lives to be a hundred. Earthly wisdom, it guarantees us nothing. Earthly knowledge, it guarantees us nothing. And all of our efforts cannot fix a crooked, broken world. And death is the end for all people, right? Again, verse 17, so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. So Village Church, I hope you see really clearly this morning, Ecclesiastes should strengthen your confidence for evangelism. Because the, the, the life that he is describing, the worthless, the meaningless life that he is not describing, that is not our life, right? It's so easy to tell yourself, everyone around me seems actually pretty happy. They seem fine. Seems like they don't really need Jesus at all. But the reality is that day after day, the soul's of people around us are growing weary of the weight of life under the sun. Day after day, it is revealed to people that life is meaningless without the meaning maker. And our strategies will not bring meaning to this earth. And our wisdom will not bring meaning to this earth. This week as I was studying, one of the most just fun little nerd things I found. This is the same word we find here for vanity in Ecclesiastes. It's the same Hebrew word that we'll find used again in places like Jeremiah when he speaks of the worthlessness of idols. This world will leave you empty just as the idols carved of wood and stone will leave you empty. And so as we finish up this morning, I want to take us to another place in Scripture. I want to take us to Psalm 73. And I was thinking this week, when we study the book of Ecclesiastes, as we will be for many months, we should have Psalm 73 in our back pocket. And so I want to read it together, and I think that you'll see why. This is like a chapter of the Bible that we just need with us as we go through Ecclesiastes. It's going to be up on the screen. You can read it in your Bibles. Here we go. It says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is their knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. 
so far just sounds like we're reading Ecclesiastes. And this is verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Is that good? Yeah. What do, we clear, what do we see clearly in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament? Life is hard. Life is monotonous. Life feels like nothing matters. What is truly lacking is that we cannot see what God can see. We cannot see that, in fact, everything matters, that every struggle has a purpose. We cannot see that God, in the end, result, and God is in the process. He's in the end, and he's in the process. He's in the joy, and he's in the sorrow. The thing that keeps us from giving up, from giving in, again, verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, and I discerned their end. What is the thing that shifts the mind? What is the thing that brings me back into focus? What's the thing that helps me clench my fists for the battle? It's when I enter the presence of God and when I see the end. Amen? When I see that although everything under the sun might feel meaningless, but there's more beyond the sun, right? Everything under the sun is meaningless, and yet the sun is not the end. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the first part. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1, 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Everything is meaningless under the sun. Who holds the sun? It is God. And by it, God infuses every moment with meaning. This life is meaningless without the meaning maker. And the wisdom of this earth is meaningless without the wisdom of heaven. The Spirit of God, the Word of God, it restores us for battle. Because it shows us that all around we have billions of people going about their lives. And everything feels meaningless feels like we'll never have enough of anything to be satisfied. And yet, the Word of God tells us there will be an end. And I think this is the last thing this morning. 
the end of all days will be an explosion of heavenly wisdom that ripples back through history and, and reveals that every single moment had meaning all along. That every single moment had eternal consequences and every single moment mattered. Some of the most simple things you choose, some of the most simple things that you commit to. Some of you in here have been married to your spouse for 30, 40, 50 years. And every single day that you choose to wake up and honor that covenant, every single day mattered. Some of you have been raising kids and trying to disciple them in Christ. And you find yourself tired of having the same conversations over and over every day for years. And yet every single thing that you have said, it matters for now and it matters for eternity. And eternity will reveal this to us. Some of you in here, you might be single and you're wondering, why is this God's plan for me? I don't like this. I don't want this. And yet every single day that you wake up and say, God, I trust you anyway, it matters. It matters now and for eternity. And so there's many roads under the sun, and there's many pursuits under the sun. And some people will travel a farther distance down these roads. Many will travel a lot farther than we will. But it's when we see beyond the earth that God will give us everything we need. And God gives us what we need today to see clearly that, that that one day all will make sense. And he's going to give us what we need in this life. And one day we will see him. Amen, Village Church? Yes. So we love opening up God's word. We love this book. It's going to be a long journey for us. We're really excited for it. And uh, I hope you're enjoying it. Will you pray with me? Well, God, we... We just think about these words this morning. And God, we know that life is full of many, many things. And ultimately, God, as your people, we just, we see in your word that, that you bring meaning to this life. That we can pursue so many things, we can know so many things, and yet, God, ultimately, we just need to know you. We need to know who you are. We need to know what you desire. We need to know that it's worth it to follow you in this world. And so, God, may we be a church who is confident, not in the things of this world being satisfying, but confident in you. Confident that you will provide everything we need for the days ahead. Pray that you'd make us a people who trust in you in the moments that seem to be over and over and over again, the same things, the same decisions to follow you, to submit to you. God, you've invited us into relationship with you. May we walk in it. And so we thank you, God, that this life is full of meaning. In Jesus' name, amen.